Benson Wong, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Hey, thank you, Jake. How are you, brother? Hey, I'm doing I'm doing a lot better. Good. I'm, I'm glad you're feeling well. I Are you related to Herb Wong? No, I'm not. Uh, famous uh, from K-Jazz. I remember him. Yeah. I listen to him, but no, not that I know of. Let me ask you a question uh, straight off. Um, can you talk about... Um, uh, the dichotomous or this uh, this um, situation with Stan where he was um, known in many circles as a, a really difficult character to be with, but yet a mensch and a loving person as well. Um, his music reflected that with airy tones and also very powerful, strong movements. He was really, um, uh, it was a a lot of a lot of conflicting stuff and I wanted you to talk about your interpretation of that analysis you know uh, well my first uh, time I, I met uh, Stan the, uh, I didn't know there was going to be Stan yet so someone told me that uh, Stan was coming over to see me and so when uh, the doorbell rang I said oh Stan gets you know and then we uh, we spent Twelve hours together that that day because it was just uh, uh, he was the person when I sat down with him and the first thing I said to him when we went in our little session was that um, I said Stan the, the, the biggest thing with you is uh, uh, you, you don't love yourself and he started crying tears came down his eyes and uh, he always had to put up all about being strong, about being perfect, and inside he uh, he just really didn't love himself. He hated the way he did things. All the stuff that he had to do, it was like he had this anger. So he had to put up this uh, this different face in front of the uh, in front of the audience. And I said, hey, you know, we all make mistakes in life. I told him that you have to learn how to forgive yourself and forgive others. You punish yourself and you punish other people. And he was sitting there listening. And I told him, hey, you just have to learn how to let go. Just relax. And that's all part of life. And your lesson in this lifetime is learn how to relax and be yourself. And to forgive yourself for the mistakes and forgiving others. And not abusing yourself and not abusing others. And... and and that really opened things up for him because he really relaxed. And after we had this, uh, uh, I, I told him just to let it out. And he was just crying. And, and, and after he just felt very, very empty. And then he started feeling good. And, and I told him what happened was, you know, he, when, when he plays his music, he gets in this zone. He said, hey, look, look at how you feel when you're playing your music. And you're feeling good. Like hey, it just comes out so beautiful. You don't even have to think. It just comes out. I said, and, and I'm looking at your vibration, and where you play, you, your your zone is that a color called uh, it's fluorescent yellow. And I said, hey, you can recreate this anytime you want in your head. All you have to do is think of this color, fluorescent yellow, right on top of your head. And because after he performs, he comes down. It comes down hard. It comes back down to this really purplish black 
soon as it gets off, boom, it goes way down. It happens a lot to formers. And, and what happens is you get so far down, you need something to bring you back up. And, and he said, yeah. And, I said, and you're smoking. The smoking is just, it kind of blocks the pain. And what happens is all your, I was looking at his, uh, his energy, I said, it just blocks everything out. And, and so once that wears off, you feel this depressed. I said, in some way you have to pull yourself up. I said, if you just breathe, I'm showing how to, how to meditate and just to breathe. And he started doing it in this session. And I said, now I come up to go and yell. Just think of this fluorescent yellow on top of your head. You can do this in a split second. And I said, notice the difference between it, fluorescent yellow. Now I want you to just think of purplish black on top of your head. And I said, you feel the difference? And his energy came down. I said, let me feel that. This is where you're at after you play. Come right back up to fluorescent yellow. Boom. I said, smile. And he did that. I said, man, this is, this, is, uh, this is wild. I said, you do this, but you don't even realize this is what you do. Now, if you consciously do this all the time, you'll stay more consistent. Because vibrating a purple, purplish black is like driving on a freeway in the middle of a traffic jam. And that's where you are. A lot of times when you have purple black, you're right in the middle of traffic jam. You get frustrated. No one knows what's going on. It is big traffic jam, and everyone's frustrated. I said, when you're, when you're vibrating at fluorescent yellow, it's like you're flying above that traffic jam. You're not there anymore. You can see. You can use your intuitiveness. You can see what's going on. You'll feel clearer. And you say, hey. You know, as his face lit up, I said, let's just, just work on this. Just be there and breathe. And uh, he felt so good. But that, that was a big difference. And it also, we worked on this for a few years, and it changed how he played his music. I said, when you're in that zone, hey, you're right at fluorescent yellow. You don't need to take anything. He said, I wish I knew this years ago. Benson, you're doing you're waxing poetic here, and I really appreciate it. I mean, why don't you think though that uh, you know uh, Stan never took responsibility for most of his actions because he couldn't remember most of the time he was in those fugue states? I mean, didn't you get on him for not taking responsibility for his own actions? Yeah, he knew it too. He knew, but he knew. Uh, I mean, I mean, he knew it, but I mean, I mean, it's just like, um. He was. What year did you? I'm just trying to figure out at what what year did you meet him? In 1985. So you met him in '85, and he was still. Yeah. I know he, at that point he had cancer, but at that point he was still using drugs and alcohol too. Well, he was. Uh, I think occasionally, but he wasn't really using that as as like medication for doctors and and uh, and a lot of smoking. Right. A lot of cigarettes. No, so I, I, this is. I want you to go back to this alpha state. I've been focusing on the alpha state. Uh, uh-huh. you, you used it as a, the color yellow, but where he would fixate. Could have been a pretty girl. Could have been, you know, just staring off. But the focus that this cat had was incredible. But again, why? Why did Stan? Um, 
even though he possessed all these gifts musically, he couldn't explain them. Why did he hate himself? Why did he what? I'm sorry. You said at the beginning of the conversation he was very down on himself when he first met you. He he really mm-hmm. was dis. Why why was he disappointed? Because he he, I mean, listen, let's face it. It wasn't like, uh, uh, I mean. He would talk to his kids, you know, in the 70s, and, you know, he'd be like, did I really do that? And they're like, yeah, Dad. So he couldn't remember doing certain carnage. But I know he – why do you think that he – he was was he a perfectionist? Why did he hate himself? Why was he so down on himself? Why was he disappointed in himself? Why was he so insecure? That was because I think when he took all his drugs and all that stuff, he, he, you know, he just was like, I can do anything I want. I am no good, so I am. I'm just gonna. He just went wild. He didn't care. He just blank a lot of the stuff out. And and, uh, and we went over these things in many sessions. I told him when he's thinking back, how did you feel at this time? Why did you do this? And how do you feel now? He said he, he's so sorry for so many stupid things he's done. Uh, but he said he wanted to change. But he can't even know how. And the only time he felt comfortable was when he got in front of crowds and played. But then after at the performance, it's just like he still had to keep this thing up in front of the public until he was home. Then he'd get really angry because he is tired and angry. He didn't feel good. He abused himself for so long that his body didn't feel good. His mind didn't feel good. And so a lot of things he just blanked out. Like totally forget it. He could be yelling at someone, and then uh, and then totally uh, forgetting it. And he he knew it, but you know he he knew it back back then that that that's what he was doing. Um, he was lashing out at everyone. He was lashing out at himself. Finally, you know he he, he got it out of the system by. Uh, a lot of our talks, but, but him uh, meditating and just let, learning how to let go. You can't change the past, but, but the only time you can uh, make a change is right now. I said, if you want to be happy, you want to feel good, then you have to start being happy right now. Do the right things right now, and you're already setting your path for the future. And so he says, I want to start doing this. I, I just want to feel good. And I know a lot of people hate me. Go ahead. And uh, he said uh, that he, he he wanted to try. He wanted to start new. So he was like, uh, he, he just he just felt like a little kid at that time. I I told him just be in kindergarten, just play, just like you. You don't have to be uh, taking responsibility for everything. Just let go of everything right now. I, I told him to start out right now and just play, because he was uh, he wanted to block out all the bad memories before. What were the? So, can you can you point to a specific per- thing that he was hung up about? Well, it had to be his his parents. Can you, you talk know, about he, that? He, I'd love to. I'd yeah. love for you to talk about that. He didn't want to disappoint his parents. His mother. He said that his mother used to. He smiled when he said, I just had this uh, saxophone uh, when I was young, and he just wanted me to play. And he'd play day and night, play out the window, 
and he didn't want to disappoint her. He loved her so much, and she loved it. But then it's like when he go out and play, you know, he, he, I guess everyone else was doing different drugs and stuff, and he got caught up in that. And she was, she, she kind of knew something was wrong, and she would, and, and he felt he disappointed her, and, and that was, I think the biggest thing. He didn't want to disappoint his mom. His dad didn't really express that much to him. So his, his energy was quieter. So he's always wondering about his dad, if, if he really loved him or cared. So he had, didn't have that real good communication with his father. But with his mom, he did. <laughs> and so uh, uh, he, his mom was always telling him to respect females, do this, do that. So he kept that in his mind, but he felt like that a lot of times as he, as he was growing older, he, he didn't follow that. He resisted that. So anyone who tried to act like his mom or try to say, hey, be gentle, be this, do it for a while, and then he would resist that, and the argument could start. And, and it all started with, with this, he didn't want to disappoint his mom, and so he knew he disappointed her. This is fascinating. I mean, he, how, but how did he know? He just, uh, first of all, he had to go on the road very early on in his life because his dad was always out of work and he, um, I know they gave him their blessing, but I, I mean, his mom never told her, told him that she was very proud of his career. He was, he just hung on to this forever. I mean, I, it's, uh, it's vexing to me. You're telling me that when he was in your treatment, he was still hung up on the fact that that he disappointed his mom. Yes. That has like a core picture right down in his heart. Wow. And, and all of the relationships afterwards is like to remind him of his mom. He disappointed them. That's why all the different relationships, uh, whenever it, and it didn't work out, he would say, that's it. Just forget it. Or, or he felt like he was a failure, so he'd drink more. Or he'd take something to ease the pain. He'd so angry. And that's why he could stop and he kept abusing himself. And he verbally abused people, and, and, and it was like he didn't care. But the core picture was his parents. And he didn't want to disappoint them. He didn't, didn't want to disappoint his mom. And so anytime he felt uh, uh, he disappointed someone, a female, and then it was like, uh, it, it, it just brought him way down. Talking to Benson Wong here on the Jake Feinberg Show on Power Talk 1210. Um, you, um, can you talk about, um, you know, um, the, the fact, did, did, was he hung up on the fact that he, um, could he ever appreciate, really smell the, stop and smell the roses and appreciate some of the incredible, even though it was it was a God given so much God given talent that he could never explain, was he able to stop and smell the roses and appreciate some of the musical legacy that he created? Yes, he did realize that, but you know it didn't really sink in. I remember when we were talking about that. I said, uh, you know, you know, look at so many people don't even see this part of you that you don't love yourself. 
everyone around the world love you. I mean, listen to your music, everyone, everywhere you go. And he, and he put a smile on his face. And, and, he, and he started saying, yes, in Asia, in Europe. I said, uh, you know, all, all houses, wherever he goes. I said, look, people do love you. And after you're gone, they're going to love you too. So he, 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 he knew it. He didn't, didn't want to disappoint people. That's, and, and so whenever he was on the stage, I really is like having to be a perfectionist. He wanted everything perfect. But he said, it, it, I said, when you do that, look at your vibration, your energy. It gets very stiff until you start playing. And then he comes up to golden yellow. So he kept fluctuating up and down, up and down. I said, it's like a yo-yo. So it's very taxing on your on your body and your spirit. You have to kind of you have to stay in, in the same flow. Just golden yellow, fluorescent yellow, right up there. You can do that anytime. And if you stay that way most of the time, then you're going to feel more relaxed. You're going to be yourself. You don't have to put on any faces, different game faces. Just be yourself. And I said that's how I'm able to read you because. That's where I vibrate at. And just to do that, you're in that zone. Just stay there. And every time you're feeling down, I said, just think of this golden yellow or fluorescent yellow on top of your head. And you learn how to do that. And that's where you can start appreciating and just being himself. And then he was friendlier to people. It just, uh, it just changed things with him. Did you, do you feel that, uh, that as he was getting older, and looking at his mortality as, as he got closer to, to his past, to him leaving this, this earth, um, did he try to make amends with anybody uh, that he might have uh, felt hated his guts? And if so, who were those people? I'm not sure. You know, I, I don't know who he talked to outside. Um, but he, he, he did try to be kinder, and I saw his interaction. On my 35th birthday, he surprised me. He called me uh, to go down to Malibu for a surprise. And I said, okay. So I went down there. The surprise was my favorite piano player is Oscar Peterson and Ray Brown. Oh, wow. I told him that at the beginning, at the first time, because I, I loved him since I was 12 years old, okay? I, I bought uh, I bought his his record, uh, Girl from Ipanema. just came out. And, and I looked at the cover, and I said, you know, I looked at the picture, and I said, I know him somewhere, somewhere. I, I, I want to meet him. So I played to his music all the time. And, and uh, at first meeting, he said, show me what you got. So I played uh, to his record. And then, so he knew that I loved the music, that I loved Oscar Peterson and Ray Brown. And so a couple of years later, he, he surprised me. And, and it was just, it was just I, I couldn't lose it. And so that was one of the, the real nice things he did to, uh, for me. And, and when I saw the interaction between Stan and Oscar and Ray Brown, they were just like brothers. They are laughing and, and having fun and, and, and talking about old times. They're just, just talking about, Hey, we've been through a lot, but you know, we had ups and downs, but before we tried to have a lot of ups. And, uh, 
and it, it was nice. Uh, so I see that I, I don't know there's any conflicts with them before, but they were sure having fun that time. And then I remember another time Wayne Shorter and his uh, his uh, wife Anna Marie were there. Uh, this is another situation, and, and they were getting along fine. I mean, uh, there was this, we all just had dinner, and we were just uh, uh, talking and laughing, and we were going to play at some, uh, I can't remember, uh, some executive, I don't know, it's Universal Studios, but he, he asked me if I wanted to play, so I played with him at that, that party. Uh, that was how kind he was. And he never, I knew he was perfectionist. I was scared to play, but he never even got on me. He just said, just speak for yourself. So I saw, I saw a change there. He just played, he said, just play and enjoy yourself. <laughs> hmm. And it, it, it was wonderful. So I, I saw how he's interacting with other people. And, also, another uh, old musician, John Ray, percussionist, played with Cal Jader. Johnny Ray. Yeah, Johnny Ray. Yeah, I love that cat, man. He's yeah. Is he still around or no? No, no. Oh, he's yeah, he's a badass. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. He, he taught me a lot uh, when I was younger. When I was about 12 years old. I used to go to this place where he worked at Drumland in San Francisco. And one day I saw him at the uh, um, Musicians Union. And I told him, uh, Stan wanted me to hand him something. So I, I took it down and he said, oh, wow. And he had something in there. And I spoke to him. He was supposed to return to Stan years ago. So it was something. They said, please, give Stan my love. But they never saw each other again. But it was, uh, I just felt that there was a lot of love there. I don't know uh, of any uh, other musicians that I that he tried to make up with. Sure, no. Uh, I, I want to. Did you know? Did, did you know? Uh, were you affiliated at all with Doctor Louis? No. Did you know Doctor Louis? No. Because Stan got onto this uh, seaweed drink, this warm seaweed drink that he started to drink, and it shrunk his tumors by quite a bit. But um, I know he connected with him up in the in the Bay Area when he moved out there. <laughs> um, how do you feel about um, the f- did Stan ever acknowledge to you that he had a mood disorder? Well, he didn't know what it was, but I told him why he had it. But but I'm um, okay. But but that but that, again, it seems like when I've talked to his son. Uh, um, Stephen, you know, he used to kind of he yeah. used to kind of ridicule Stephen a little bit because uh, he, of his insecure how insecure he was. He couldn't really face the fact um, that he had a mood disorder. But I'm just, you know, anyway, you can riff on that, whatever you want. Oh yeah, I, Steve was so much like his dad. Right. And, and when Steve calls, leaves him messages, I, it, yeah, I said, "That's Stan." You know, so so it. Uh, he, Steve, always wanted to please Stan. And so it's like coming so close, holding on to Stan, but Stan, uh, he'd pull away. There's this resistance. Steve was always doing to please him. And I said, Dad, I'm going to do this and this. And then uh, after Steve 
trip into him. It was these pictures. When he looked at Steve, he saw himself. Because everyone kept saying, hey, Steve is just like a, your little twin. It's like, it's like your double. And so when he looked at Steve, he saw the, the, uh, how Steve was trying to be like his dad and sound just like his dad. He saw that, but he didn't like it because it reminded him of him. But he really loved Steve. But he said, I love Beth so much. I love Steve so much. I don't know why I act this way. And then I explained to him. I said, look at Steve. He is just like you. And when he when he disappoints, boom, he gets way down. I, I, this is so. This makes a lot of. It, it's like uh, you you feel so. Um, you you hate yourself, and then you see that the same qualities play out in your kids, and instead of trying to soothe that, you rage on them or you push that's them away. Right. That, that's that that's a that's amazing. What about, can you break down his the way he felt about the rest of his kids? Because you know, Dave David, uh, I've not been unable to connect with him yet. He's out in Korea. Bev, I've talked to a couple of times. I know that mm-hmm. I know that Steve and, and Bev really forgave. Uh, uh, for the most part, forgave Stan for his foibles. But uh, I guess I, what I'm also looking for in this documentary, which is so vital, is that uh, there's just a foil, a person who really didn't like Stan. And I wonder about his his uh, his kids that he had with Monica. Were there people that just for, in his family that never really forgave him? You know, he didn't really say much about them. He always talked about, it's just mentioning, Steve and Bev, and he had a picture of Bev in his wallet all the time with Katie. Every time I looked at Katie, his granddaughter, a big smile came on his face. It's like he had, he had three pictures in his, in his wallet. There's Bev, there's Katie, and there's my daughter, Lauren, and Brent, okay, my daughter and son. And so he, he, he pulled it out of his wallet, showed me, and he just put the smile on his face. And when he's feeling down, he just looks at them. And, and then, but when, when he talked to Bev, a lot of times she had the same qualities too, but she wanted to, she, she loved her dad, and she wanted to please him. But, but then what would happen is he'd get so angry at her, he resisted that, because in a lot of ways she was like him too. And so when she spoke her feelings, sometimes she didn't like it. So he didn't care what she said or what uh, Steve would say. Boom. He wouldn't even hear it. He had just get it. It's like, uh, it like totally red. get angry. And he'd yell. So he had to learn how to let it go and to listen. And, 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 and it started working out for him when he didn't resist. But he is, uh, I said, it's not going to happen overnight. Look how many, how old you are, how many years you've carried these pictures with you. And, and in life, it's like uh, we have this internal camera. We're taking snapshots of every single thing we do in life, good things and bad things. If someone says you're, you're screwed up, where's it go? A screwed up goes in your head. Someone says you, you're just so, uh, you don't have a heart, you're so mean. Where's that picture go? It goes in your heart. Someone says you talk too much. You're, you're just you're filthy. You're, you're you're you know you're just so mean. And it goes in the throat. So if you carry these pictures with you, and and, and you have 
all these years, you keep adding up pictures. And these mental image pictures, it can become physical pictures. And that's why he had all these pictures to his motion levels right down in his stomach. He carried all this stuff with him. That's why he had his liver problems and, and, and problems with digesting everything in his heart. That's because of all these pictures. If you let go of these pictures, uh, then you can start healing yourself, healing your spirit. you a question being that uh, what kind of what's your title as a doctor by the way I, I, I'm not a doctor hey, what is uh, your title I'm a clairvoyant advisor and, and, and coach clairvoyance advisor yeah I like uh -huh. that that's really cool what yeah. what, what what in your mind what is the most what are the things that are going to grip an audience about a Stan gets film documentary setting aside his musical prowess what are the things that are going to grip people about what was inside this man that that he wanted to be a little kid and play because when he was with my kids my daughter was two years old my son uh nine years old he just played with them in the water we could go to the beach he, he, he wanted to eat ice cream be laughing and making faces and, and, and we'd look at him and say And I said, hey, that's where all the growth is. That's where you're going to feel good. And he felt so good, he'd come out laughing. And I said, notice how you're feeling this again. And I said, yeah, I feel like a little kid. I said, that's where you're going to just be like a little kid, be in kindergarten. What happens is we're so programmed to get an education, be good, and go through college and get your, your, your degree, whatever it is, at university level. Too serious responsibility, all this pressure, and we forget how to play. I said, be in kindergarten, play. It's okay to make a little mistakes, have fun, be honest. And that, that, and, and, and that made a lot of sense to him. I said, hey, uh, I feel good. I said, now be responsible, be, be an adult. And, and he, I, I said, feel, feel how that feels without all this pressure. I said, just go now go back and play. Be in that space. And that's what he loved to do. He loved playing with his dog, James. <laughs> he, he just loved. I have pictures of him, but I, I, never, I don't even show people where we're making all these faces, all of us, uh, in, in the camera, and where he's just having fun. Where he's kissing this, uh, my daughter and my son, because he's just like a little kid. Just, Let me ask you, though. So, so I mean, but going back to the film... Is that compelling in the sense that, like, um, you know, that he was molded emotionally at a very early age and never grew up and always, I mean, I, I understand because, you know, his geniuses were set in music at 13. He was on the road at ninth grade. But, I mean, you say he liked to be a kid. Um, uh, why is that a compelling thing for the, for the documentary? Because it's like not having to be anyone, not having all the responsibility. 
it, it was just being able to play and have fun and to laugh, to be free. That's, that's I think that was a, the biggest thing with him. The biggest thing that really uh, stuck in his mind, in his heart. It's like he had to, he had to always be someone. He had to always please people. And so there's a lot of pressure. And he, 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 he you could see how it, it really affected him and how he treated other people, other musicians and things like that. But then when he was a little kid playing, that's, that's just how he wanted to be. He wanted to laugh and play and just lay in the sun. That was one of his favorite things. But I Walking guess so. Yeah. So um, <laughs> I'm sorry. Would you say that when it came to treating, um, uh, getting into arguments with people or fights or petty struggles, he would often have a childlike responses to these people? Uh, yeah, I, I I I would say so. Is there a way to cite an example? Because like you say, he's on the bandstand. You know, I mean, that's the thing. You talk to people, be like, "How did you do that?" And he's like, "I just want to get some ice cream." You know, he's like, he didn't really, <laughs> you know, he just. I know what you're saying. Can you give an example of something he expressed to you as far with a musician, or you know, that where uh, he just handled it, unlike not like a band leader, but like a child. I think um, one example. Uh, it, it, it was um, when he was on stage at the um, Monterey Jazz Festival, and he was smoking a cigarette on stage, and Dizzy Gillespie came up to him and asked him for a smoke. And Stan pulled out cigarettes from his pocket the whole pack. And, and uh, um, Dizzy took the cigarettes, threw them all out, out to the crowd. There's no more smoking. And for a second, Stan got real mad. He spun around. And then, you know, he started laughing like crazy, and they both hugged. And they played big views of beautiful music. I mean, it's just a wonderful thing. I saw, hey, Stan, for a second, was angry. He says, what are you doing? Secrets. And then, and then he started laughing, and it's like he was able to let go. Right. That was a big example to a big crowd. Did he, I mean, was he, did you, did he talk about times where, um, on the, where a situation with, with a musician where he could not let go and he regretted it? Um, not that I recall. I can't remember any specific situation. No. No, it's fine. Um, how do you know, how, who told you that they saw a difference in Stan in a positive way? The people around us, um, uh, it's like this family, they have so a difference. And the doctors notice a difference. And they said, what are you doing? You know, it's like uh, they, they notice that he's doing something different in his, in the way he acted was different. Just, it wasn't so intense. And they, they said, hey, his blood pressure isn't up like usual. He's, his body felt normal. It's because he's relaxed more. 
So it's just a comments from uh, the doctors and, and family, and family, and uh, I'm trying to think of his fiance at the time, Samantha. Tell me that, uh, wow, Sam is really, you know, feeling a lot better, a lot lighter. He's, uh, you know, he's, he's treating people different. Okay. So, uh, I mean, yeah, this yeah. is really important. Um, uh, uh, were you there uh, on the boat when they were releasing his ashes? No, I wasn't. Were you with him towards the end of his life when he was dying, though? And could you talk about maybe the last time, the last conversation that you had with Stan? Yes. Uh, uh, the night before he passed away, Samantha called me and said, Stan would like to see you. And so I flew down to Malibu, and he was in a coma-like state when I got into the house. The house was filled with people. And, and, oh, and, I, and when I saw that, I said, hey, Stan and I had talked about this. Uh, I said, when, you, when, you, when, you, when you're going to pass, everyone's going to be there. They're going to want something. And he says, I know. And, and that, as soon as I walked in, I said, whoa, all these people in there, it was like a party. And uh, I, I just wanted to see Stan, so... Samantha and Bev uh, uh, took me to see Stan. When I saw Stan, he, he didn't even look like Stan. He was like a toothpick. And he was, he said, in semi-coma. He's been just like that. And when I went in there, they left me alone with him somewhat, uh, in this little room. And I said, Stan, uh, I started talking spiritually, uh, just saying hello to him. And I, I held his hand, I rubbed his forehead, and his eyes start flickering. This and and I told him I loved him, and I said, "Hey, if you stay in your body, that you know it's going to be a lot of problems. It's so much your body's so depleted." I said, "It's okay to let go. It'll be okay." And uh, he opened his eyes. He couldn't talk, but he he just grabbed on my hand and squeezed tight. So, whoa. I said, oh, Stan, I love you too. And after me about 20 minutes with him, um, I was leaving the room, and someone else came in. I don't know, one of his brothers. And, and everyone started carrying him out. They said, oh, Stan, let's go out in the back into the sun. So I saw him carry him, stand out in the sun, and laying him on the grass. He couldn't do anything, but he was out there. But uh, everyone was crowded around him again. I said, boy, I'm glad I got to say my goodbyes, and I love him, and he'll be okay. And then I told Samantha, and I said, I don't want to just go back home to San Francisco. And I didn't want to party or anything, so that's took me to the airport. I came back home, and then the news the next morning, Stan Gantz passed, passed away. And wow. that was it. Do you so, talk about uh, what year were, were, what year were you born? 
1952. So you started to go, did you go to the both end and places like that and facing Street West to see Stan play? When was the first time you saw him play? And uh, can you talk about what made him a transcendent musical character if you have a, a specific memory of him on the bandstand before you ever personally worked with him? Um, see him on TV. <laughs> I, I didn't see him live at the time. Um, and listening to his music. Seeing him on the Johnny Carson show. It's like everyone else watching him on TV. And, and just knowing. But, uh, but I knew that I knew him somewhere. So it was somewhere before. And said, uh, I know I'm going to meet him. Well, that was when I was 12 years old. 13 years old, and then I didn't know 20 or 30 years later that was going to be that long, but it happened. And it, we were just like brothers, and it was just, uh, it felt so good. And he felt it immediately, and we just had that bond and that trust. It was a nice feeling. Um, but I, I, I was uh, really fortunate to be able to play my father's nightclub when I was 14 years old. What club was that? And uh, I was able to play with my uh, at my father's nightclub. Yeah, what club was it? It's called the China Doll. It and was a it was in foreign restaurant. Wow. So, so uh, this was in Chinatown or Fillmore District? No, no. It was um, uh, on Post Three Six Thirty Two Post. It was near. Uh, was it near Jackson Union Square? So. Kind of Nike, yeah. Leonard Jackson, Sutter. Where, where was the? What were the clubs that was close to? Um, it was right by Trader Vic's. <laughs> wow. Trader Vic's on Cosmo Place. So, uh, I. And what instrument? Cool. What instrument did you play? I played the drums. Wow. Wow. So you played the. And so, what was uh, who used to come in there and play? Oh, so many people. Uh, Johnny and Ralph Mathis came in. Sonny Johnson used to be West Montgomery's drummer. He came in and he taught me a lot. Um, and, and even uh, Johnny Ray came in because I, I played at, uh, um, at Drumland. And, and so Johnny Ray would come in and, and play sometimes. We had a great piano player named Fred Washington. And Vernon Alley used to come in. How many of those cats? I need to talk. Your this is unbelievable. Johnny Ray would he like play like timbales next to you? Like like, like what? I mean to me, yeah. I I want to I want any of those cats that are still alive. Like because like I think Wes for a while like actually had a a room at the Booker T Washington Hotel too. And when he would, oh. I'm just saying that like this is like my favorite regional bash. I was born in '78, Benson. So, oh yeah, wow. yeah. That's so awesome. you know, I, I mean, I'm I'm a clairvoyant journalist, <laughs> but uh -huh. uh, but but I love this uh, the China doll. Uh, any cats that are still around from that time, I really want to connect with just to interview them because to me, it was the most. Ma I mean, you were 20 years old in 1972. That was the greatest era of music ever in the history of the of the of our country. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Jeez, I don't know anyone that's still around. Not even. Red Washington, please. Yeah. Uh, it was just, it was just, at that time, I think uh, I was so much into that, so the energy was set for me to, to meet so many people that I knew I wanted to meet, and, and, and like, all my dreams, like, uh, 
what I want the, the drum line to play. And, and Joe Morello would come in, and, and John Ray would surprise me, bring him in, and, and you know, I, I was sitting at the drums here in this little practice room, and Joe Morello came in, and he gave me tips, and he started playing, and it was just unbelievable. I mean, Art Blakey there, he introduced me to all these different players. But I, I don't know anyone who's still around. That's okay. What What do you think uh, uh, was your um, best, greatest contribution uh, to uh, – can you just talk about um, how – where Stan was, um, I, where where he was before he met you, and then after you guys had some time to. Uh, well, what did the meditation look like too? I mean, how, how was that traditional meditation? Did you hypnotize him? What did you do? No, I just uh, I taught him how to ground and how to run his first energy. I thought a grounding like uh, I explained to him is like a ship that's anchoring. I want you. To, I wanted to. Uh, put an anchor from your tailbone to the center of the earth. So I showed him how to anchor. And with this anchor, it's that allow gravity to pull out all the negative energy in your body, hmm. all the anger, everything. You know, so I helped him to release. So he learned how to release. So whenever you're feeling down or angry, wherever that anger is coming from, just allow that anger to go down your body. Just no effort. And so he's learning how to do that. That's not learn to run your energy. So I said, this first energy, bring it up to your legs, up your feet, your legs, and down your grounding cord. If you do that, it helps you be more comfortable in your body. It helps you be more comfortable on earth. And then, are you feeling that? I said, no, run some of this cosmic energy, universal energy. And how's that feel in your body? It felt light to him. I said, yeah, that's more spiritual energy. So you're running this cosmic energy, this spiritual energy, and you're running this earth energy. It's like mixing the two together, and it puts you in tune spiritually, and you're very aware in your body. So you keep running this, these old pictures will just run out of your body. You keep vibrating at a light, fluorescent yellow, and you're going to feel good. Be this way every day. And you do that, that's how you're going to be. You're going to be open, you're going to be smiling, you're going to be feeling good. And your, it helps your body to start repairing itself. Did he, did he, did he talk about how he was treated by the guys in Tea Gardens band? Bev alluded to the fact that they did a lot of kinky, weird stuff to him and kind of made him, uh, uh, subjected him to some weird stuff. And did he ever talk about, um, because he didn't really have any male role models. Yeah, no, he he never spoke about that. Yeah, he, just in general, he spoke about different uh, where he played and who he played with, and just off the record, there's there's I don't know his name. There's one musician who's world one of the greatest that he said I can't stand playing with him. He told me, <laughs> but I, I won't say his name. Uh, no, it's uh, fine. I'll, yeah, <laughs> let me tell you afterwards. Something you wouldn't believe what it was, but it was. Uh, he said he didn't. He didn't enjoy playing with them because he was all over the place. Well, I mean, without using his name, just tell the story if you would. Oh, yeah, that 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 was it. He said, "Oh, 
going to play with him. You never know where he's going to be. You know, he, he just can't follow him. Uh, he's one place, then he's another. And uh, just, uh, he said that, and that was it. He said, and he, he went to want something else. <laughs> he shook his head. Wow. Um, uh, so, in your mind, uh, do you believe that Stan um, was at peace with himself when he died? Did Were there things lingering that he, he obviously had improved in letting go, but was he at peace? I think at, at the end he was at peace. He just wanted, uh, it's like our last goodbyes, it's like it's okay to let go. Um I think he, he was just so tired. He didn't want to fight anymore. Um, but he is comfortable. Uh, you know, he is comfortable as spirit. Had he ever been connected? I mean, to me, he played such spiritual music, but do you believe he was ever really connected to his spirit prior to meeting you? Did he ever mention, the, the clo- did he ever try to go to see a guru, or did he ever... I mean, he was raised Jewish, culturally Jewish, but I mean, you know, he, he was a heroin addict and alcoholic pretty quickly, you know? Mm-hmm. No, he never m- mentioned anyone specific. But uh, but he, he knew he knew he would be in his own, but he didn't ever look at the colors. And I just told him what the colors were. And I said, hey, when you're up there, wow. Anyone can be in the zone, just be it fluorescent yellow. You add in a little sky blue, and what that does, it helps you. The, uh, the sky blue is like creative energy. So it helps you tap in your creativeness. So I told him fluorescent yellow, add a little sky blue in there, and it helps, helps bring this creative energy to you and, and, and people around you. And then that light green can help you to make the changes you want. And it'll just be like a green light for everyone. It feels so good. But you have fluorescent yellow, light blue, and light green. Those are the three colors that he ran. And I noticed that in his playing, too. He's smiling more. And appreciative more. And I said, that's great. And he called from Europe after. Well, he says, I feel good. I, I, I feel good, I feel happy, and people felt that way too. And I just remember a, a, little, uh, a long time I took him to San Francisco Chinatown for dinner once. And he's always wanting to pay, but I said, no, I'm paying. You know, and, and people were in there, but they were being respectful, respectful of him. And he's just nodding and smiling. So after we ate his dinner, <clears throat> he went. I went outside, and he pulled out his his, uh, his uh, uh, saxophone, and he started playing for everyone, just right there. And, and, and that was like him what he loved to do, but he he rarely did something like that. So I thought that was nice, and everyone loved it. And so they got to see another side of Stan. He was just playing. Wow, that's pe- that's that's fantastic stuff. Yeah, can you? I just was gonna say, um, 
can you just talk about um, a little bit more? Uh, la last question: the 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 color states. Uh, it has a it has a uh, bit of a Bob Ross flavor to it. <laughs> um, mm. Can you talk about um, linking those with the psyche, at the individual colors? Oh, when, when it's you're vibrating at this golden yellow, light yellow, it's like you're floating above. It, it, it's, it's like being above that freeway. So most people are in a traffic jam right on the freeway. They don't know what's going on. They get flustered and everything. It's like everyday life. It's like a traffic jam. I said, when you're floating at golden yellow, or fluorescent yellow, it's light being above that traffic jam. It's hardly anyone up here. But this is where you want to be. There's plenty of room. You can flow. You can laugh. You can play. You can see things. Your intuitiveness, intuitiveness clicks in. And you're just creating this happiness. It's a nice place to be. It's like being on heaven on earth. Some people are happy, some people are sad, and you're picking up 
what happens, you have to come back. You can think of Bev in New York. Like tap your forehead and come back in your head. Because what happens to your part of your aura is in New York. And now, if you're thinking of someone in Los Angeles, part of you is in Los Angeles. If you're thinking 10 years back, part of you is back in the past. If you're thinking what's going to happen in 10 years, part of you is in the future. So you can't control that future. You can't, and you don't have any energy to make anything happen to you right now. <clears throat> so the best way to do it is pull your energy back. Pull them to be in a bubble. Just imagine a bubble around him, 18 to 20 inches all around him. So that is your aura. <clears throat> so I want you to practice this. So you're totally, you're totally uh, uh, aware in front of you, on each side of you, behind you, above, and below you. This is your universe. This is your aura. This is where you wanted to be. <clears throat> this is where you can make things happen. And you're not affected by all these other people. And he started doing that. So it, it makes a big difference. Benson Wong, I just, Benson, you were um, phenomenal in part one. We're going to be doing this again uh, in person. I think you're, you're adding a valuable insight to uh, Stan, the man inside, uh, because he had a, it was a blessing and a curse. And, um, uh, you know, we're getting closer to, to we're rounding third and heading home and, uh, you're helping us get there, man. I really appreciate you taking the time and we'll be in touch. I need to slide home. <laughs> head first, <laughs> head, head first, baby. Head okay. first. All right. That's all. Yeah. All right. All right. Uh, yeah. Thank good. Thank you so much.